0: everyone out this evening on a rainy evening appreciate you all braving the elements and showing your love for God's word and your love for the brethren it's encouraging for those who are visiting to be here that's always an important thing I was talking to a middle school and high school class and we were talking about being a Barnabas and I made the point that one way that we can be a Barnabas is to simply show up uh, to be at the assemblies of the congregation and be there because you're showing that you care about God and you care about your brethren. And it puts you in a position to do what Hebrews ten, twenty four 24, 25 says we're supposed to do, which is to stir one another up to love and good works. But you've got to be here to do that. And so I appreciate so very much, but also appreciate the members here who are supporting this meeting Uh, for you. It is an absolute duty. You need to be here, but still you'd be commended for uh, doing that duty uh, with uh, care and love and concern and hopefully desiring to be here. I see so many familiar faces, I won't necessarily go through all of them, but it is interesting to me, and I had a little bit of a flashback last night, I don't know if you know, that Wes Smith and Sister Mary Smith were here, and I knew they weren't supposed to be here, but they were here anyway. And I understand now that there was a secret plot to keep me from knowing about this information until the last minute. But it has now been uncovered. But it's good to see them and Jason and Misty Delk uh, somewhere around here. And I see Sister McMunn. There you go. They also used to worship with us at the Oak Mountain Church of Christ. And so it's always good to see their familiar faces. And uh, I don't know if you all know, uh, but I also have a connection to Brother Bill Carter out there. Uh, He was an elder at the Woodland Hills congregation when I worshiped there. I think it was the spring of my law school career uh, in Nashville. And so very good to see him. That congregation was very good to me. In fact, I'll say this. That's where I really got uh, serious about my preaching. Because uh, at the time, Brother David Claypool was the preacher there. And I came there, and I was interested in trying to do a little more preaching, but I was thinking, you know, once in a blue moon sort of thing. But uh, Brother Claypool said, hey, I'm, I'm kind of retiring a little bit. I want to slow down a little bit. So how about I'll preach Sunday morning, and you preach Sunday night? And that's what I did. And I tell you what, if you've ever been in that situation, it's one thing to get up a sermon once in a blue moon. It's another one to do it every week. And that was very helpful to me. So I appreciate it so very much, the elders there, Brother Carter and his family. Just wonderful folks. It's good to see you. I want to talk about 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 19 tonight. So turn your Bibles there. 2 Kings, the 5th chapter, verses 1 through 19. And we're going to entitle the lesson, Lessons on Salvation from Naaman and the Servant Girl. Lessons on Salvation from Naaman and the Servant Girl. And I know there might be some out there scratching their heads, maybe some who are listening, saying, Whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. 2 Kings 1-19, that is an Old Testament passage, and I know about you people, you folks don't believe in the Old Testament, you're always getting after saying that we try to go there for instrumental music and we're going there for this and that, and I know you folks don't believe in the Old Testament, so how dare you not believe in the Old Testament, talk about a New Testament concept of salvation, but base it on Old Testament. You can't do that, you've got to choose one or the other. Well, hold on just a second. Now, we certainly understand that there is an Old Testament, and there's a New Testament... And we understand that we are now living under the New Testament, under the New Testament dispensation. And because of that, we don't live under the Old Testament. We can't look to the Old Testament for authority, for the practices of the church and the organization of the church and the work of the church. But we never said we throw out the baby with the bathwater. We never said that the Old Testament has no use to us. We never said that we never refer to the Old Testament. In fact, in the New Testament itself, it talks about the value of the Old Testament look at Romans chapter 15 verses one through four. Romans the 15th chapter verses one through four, Romans chapter 15, verses one through four. The Bible says, "We, then who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification." For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. Listen to verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for what? For our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Whatever things were written before. The Old Testament, those things were written for what our learning in the New Testament age, under the cross of Christ in his church, those things in the Old Testament are valuable, those things ought to be studied. those things are just as much the inspired Word of God as anything in the New Testament. Remember we read last night, second Timothy three sixteen through seventeen that all Scripture is inspired of God, all Scripture is God breathed, and so yes, it is appropriate for us to study. The Old Testament, but we also recognize that we're not under the Old Testament, that Christ nailed that to the cross, we're under the New Testament dispensation, and therefore we don't justify the practices of the church by going to the Old Testament. So with that being said, now let's turn to 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 19. It's a lengthy reading, but let's read it. There's much value in always reading the scriptures, but especially this particular account at this occasion. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 19. 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 19. The Bible says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on rage and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel, She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised... When this letter comes to you that I have sent Naaman, my servant, to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me. And he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger, him, saying, "'Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean.'" But Naaman came furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the far part of the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Can I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. The servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. He returned to the man of God, he and all his age, and came and stood before him and said, Indeed, now I know there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, for whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman said, Then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth. For your servant will no longer offer either burnt offering or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. Yet in this thing, may the Lord pardon your servant. When My master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there. And he leans on my hand. I bow down the temple of Rimon. When I bow down the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Then he said to him, Go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. And so in this passage, we're introduced to this. Mighty man. Naaman. He's a military man. A man of might. A man of valor. He is the commander of the armies of the king of Syria. And he's not just any commander. He's a commander who's been victorious. Because it says by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. So he's got a lot of stature in Syria. He's got a lot of stature and rapport with the king. got a lot of currency. But there's a problem. All those wonderful things are true. But he's a leper. And there's nothing he can do about it. And there's nothing anybody in Syria can do about it. But the story fast forwards and you've got these Syrians going on a raid, And they take captive an Israelite girl. And it just so happens that she's serving Naaman's wife. And she hears about Naaman's situation and she has a reaction. She says, oh, if only we were back in the land of Israel. I know a prophet there, a man of God, and he would surely heal Naaman. And that must have been impressive. What she said got the attention of Naaman's wife. And that must have been relayed to Naaman because the next verse we read that now Naaman is taking this information to whom? The king of Syria. And saying, listen to what she said. Remember, there's a great relationship there. And the king of Syria thinks very highly. And so he's going to try to help this man. This is his commander, right-hand man. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to handle this. I'm going to send a letter to the king of Israel. We'll take care of this. And so he goes over there, and he's got the ten talents of silver, the 6,000 shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothes. And he goes over to the king of Israel and presents that letter, waiting to be healed. And the king of Israel opens up the letter, reads it, and just has it come apart. What? What does this guy ask? He, how can I heal this guy of lepers? Does he think I'm a god? Do I have divine power? Do I look like I have the power to kill and make alive? You know what this is? i tell you what this is. This is pretext. This isn't a, he's trying to start a war because he's going to ask me to do something he knows I can't do. And when I say no, we're going to have a war. So he, was, he tore his clothes. He's beside himself. Well, then Elisha, the man of God, hears about this, and he's kind of perplexed. What is all this? drama what's all they did send him to me and if he comes to me I'll tell you something he's going to know something he's going to know that there's a prophet of God in Israel and so that's exactly so Uh, Naaman his entourage they go over to Elisha's house and he stands at the door and evidently Elisha had this all worked out in his head and what happened was a little different than what he anticipated Elisha didn't even come out of his house now, wait a minute. Now, you've got a dignitary there. This is the commander of the armies of Syria. And you're not even going to dignify him with a visit. You won't even open the door and, and shake his hand, look at him, lay eyes on him. Nope. Send a servant. Servant said, go to the River Jordan. You'll be uh, dipped there seven times. And you'll be cleansed. Pretty simple, right? Straightforward. Easy to understand. Nothing difficult about that. Except for how did Naaman react? He got angry. He said he went away in a rage. Why? Because he had this preconceived notion. He said, oh, I knew how this was going to work out. I was going to come over here, and he was going to come out and make a big show of things, a big splash. And he was going to call on the name of his God. He's going to wave his hand where the leprosy is. And wow, big theatrical production. And it didn't happen. And that made Naaman mad, angry. But I'm so glad that he had some level-headed servants and those level-headed servants now, they're, they're not dumb now. They, they're going to be respectful, right? So they say, my father. That's a term of respect. My father. If, if the man of God would have asked you to do something great, something tremendous, some, some momentous feat, you would have done it gladly. Well, that's why you came over here with 10 talents of silver and 6,000 shekels of gold and 10... Ch- I mean, that's why you went to the king. So why not just do what he says and be cleansed? And give credit to Naaman this time. Despite the rage before, despite the indignation before, something about what the servant said got to him. And he did exactly what the man of God said to do. He went to the River Jordan and he dipped seven times. And what do you think happened? Exactly what the man of God said would happen. (laughs) He was cleansed. Said his skin was like that of a baby. (laughs) When God heals, he heals. And then he's so excited about that. He's so thankful about it. He's so appreciative that he's trying to give Elisha gifts. I said, No, nah, I'm not having none of that. Not having any of that. And this guy says, What really is the point of it all? Hey, I know now something. I know that there's a God in Israel because of this incident. What a great, great story there. Great account. A lot of lessons there. And the first lesson that I want to extract from that about salvation is this the road to salvation begins with our recognition of our desperate need to be saved let's say it again the road to salvation begins with our recognition of our desperate need to be saved think about this story Naaman was a leper and there's nothing he could do about it he needed salvation he needed cleansing he was desperate So much so that just a simple confession of this young servant girl about there being a prophet in Israel who would heal him. That was enough for him to go to the king. I want you to think about that for a second. Think about what that is. This is a servant girl who just happened to say something to Naaman's wife, and now Naaman is going to, of all people, the most powerful man in Syria, saying, let's act on what this servant girl said. Folks, he was desperate. He was in desperate need of being saved, and he saw in that confession, he saw in the words of that servant girl, hope. Maybe you think it's tenuous, maybe you think it's not likely, but when you get to that point, and there's just a little glimmer of hope, you're going to seize it. And I'd like to suggest to you, I'm not terribly concerned about uh, leprosy tonight. But that concept of getting to the point where you recognize your desperate need to be saved, that's important. I mean, think about this. If you, let's say, you know Governor Bill Lee, okay? Good buddies. Maybe you grew up with him. Maybe you got some family members that know him. I suspect having that wondrous relationship with a very powerful man in the state of Tennessee, I suspect... That if you had an ingrown toenail, you're probably not going to call Governor Lee and say, hey, can can you help me with this? You're not going to do that. You're not going to waste your time on that sort of thing. This is a powerful man. This is a busy man. On the other hand, if you have a brain tumor, or maybe your child has a cancer that's very rare, only 100 people in the world have it, you might very well call Governor Lee and say, is there anything you can do for me? Why? You recognize your desperate need to be saved. And again, as we're saying, I'm not worried so much about leprosy and cancer and things of that nature. What I'm concerned about now is the salvation of the soul. And my suggestion is just like Naaman got to that point, that we've got to get people to the point where they recognize their desperate need to be saved. If we don't get people there, there's not going to be any salvation. There's not going to be obeying the gospel. There's not going to be any repentance and confession. We've got to get people to the point where they recognize they need a Savior. And there are too many people here who don't recognize that in this life. I remember being on a plane ride, I think I was going to Tampa, and there was a lady on there, and we got to striking up a conversation, we were talking about spiritual things, and you know, her view of life was this, that during the course of her life, she'd done some, some pretty bad things, some things that she was ashamed of. But on the other side, she'd done some pretty good things too. And in her mind, the way judgment was going to go down is this, that God was going to look at the good deeds on one side and the bad deeds on the other side, and if the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, she's going into the pearly gates of heaven. You know, a lot of people think that. They just think, hey, he said, I'm a pretty good person. Uh, I had an uncle, and the way he looked at it, hey, I, I follow the golden rule, I don't hurt anybody. I don't really lie to anybody. I'm not murdering anybody. I'm a pretty good fellow. And so a lot of people think of themselves, I'm a pretty good guy. Yes, I have some faults. Yes, I have some failings. Yes, I've done some things I'm embarrassed about. But, but, but on balance, I'm pretty good. And I think God will recognize that. These are people who haven't got to Naaman's position. They don't, they're not desperate yet. They don't recognize. They desperately need a Savior. We've got to convict people that they are in jeopardy of hellfire. Look at Romans three twenty-three. Romans chapter three verse twenty-three. The road to salvation begins with a recognition of our desperate need to be saved. Romans chapter three verse twenty three. Romans the third chapter and verse twenty three, the Bible says very simply for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now who's that leave out? Well the folks over in Timbuktu. Who does that leave out? All have sinned. Folks over in China. All have sinned. The folks over in Australia, all have sinned. Folks in Mexico, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have transgressed God's law, either by omission or commission. We've either done something that God told us not to do, or we failed to do something that God told us to do. That's sin. He says, all have sinned, and all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Somebody says, so what? Okay, yeah, so we all sin. What's the big deal? We got feet of clay. We make mistakes. That's fine. What? Why do you care, Ken? Why is it so important? Well, it's so important because of what is said in Romans chapter six and verse twenty-three. Romans the sixth chapter, and verse twenty-three. Romans chapter six and verse twenty-three. The Bible says, "For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord." I like that. The wages of sin. What do we earn by our sin, right? We all know what wages are. Wages are we we make an agreement with our employer. We say, you know what? I will give you so much work in exchange for so much pay. And so we do our end of the bargain. We do the work. Maybe we get paid every week. Maybe we get paid every two weeks. But when it comes to the end of that pay period, we expect to be paid, right? And when we are paid, generally speaking, people don't say, Oh, thank you so very much for your generosity and your benevolence. Oh, you're so giving, you're so liberal. You don't say that. Why don't you say that? Because that's not generosity. That's what you're owed. There was an agreement. You gave the work, and the money coming back to you, those are wages. You earned that. There's no gift in that. Now, what do we earn by our sin? Death. And the gift, the gift is eternal life. But maybe somebody said, well, you know, okay, so... So I'm going to, have to die one day. I mean, what's, what's the big deal? Oh, no, wait a minute. There, there's more to that. There's more to death than that. Look over Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Before you get too cavalier with that, I want you to understand what sin will cost us. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Revelation 20, through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it. From whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. The books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Listen, to verse 14 and 15. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The price of sin is not just physical death. It's eternal death. It's eternal separation from God. That's what makes hell so horrible. That we're never going to be with God again. There's nothing about God in hell. That's what we earn. Now that ought to get us to think. I mean, it's a place so terrible that Jesus... I think it's interesting that, that people want to say, well, Jesus is so loving and Jesus is so wonderful, and, 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 it, and He is. But you know who spoke about hell more than anybody, as recorded in the pages of divine inspiration? It was Jesus. Jesus, over and over again, warned people about the horrors of hell. So bad that He used very vivid imagery of plucking at your eye, cutting off an arm, uh, cut off your hand, I'm sorry. This is such a terrible place. Whatever the price that's necessary to avoid that, you do it. And that's what we earn by our sin. And we've got to bring people to that recognition. And, folks, that's not easy. That's not easy. Because, again, people tend to look at themselves as, I'm a pretty good guy. But we can't look at ourselves through the lenses of human eyes. We've got to look at ourselves through the lenses of God as revealed in Scripture. And God says, there's no one good. <laughs> Nobody. You think you're a pretty good guy? God says, no, you're not. Not before a holy God. Not before a God who cannot fellowship sin. Not when we have sin in our lives. We've transgressed against God. We, we don't understand sometimes the gravity of sin, I think. We make light of it. Because, again, we look around and we think, well, we all do it and don't realize what a serious thing it is. But for those of us that lose the appreciation for the price of sin, might I invite you to study closely the cross of jesus christ that's the price for sin why did he have to die because sin is so terrible we need to understand that and we need to make sure that people around us understand that we've got to bring them to the brethren what shall we do moment look over in acts chapter 2 acts chapter 2 we, in our teaching, we, in our preaching, we, in our sharing, have to bring people to acknowledge their desperate need for a Savior. Otherwise, we can't get people converted to Christ. We've got to impress upon them the eternal consequences of their situation. Acts chapter 2, and let's begin verse 36. It's after Peter in Pentecost has preached a sermon convicting some. That they, by lawless hands, had taken Jesus, the very Son of God, sent to be a Savior, and had killed him. Listen to verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know, surely God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now listen to the reaction. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? That's where we got to get people. Get people to that point of recognition where they're cut to the heart by the sinfulness that they've displayed and they say, what shall we do? That's a cry of despair. That's a cry for help. Is there anything that can be done? We need to bring people to that point. And you can't bring people to that point by preaching, I'm okay, you're okay. No, we're not okay. When we sin, we're alienated from God. We need a savior, all of us. That's what our preaching ought to be. That's what our teaching ought to be. Why do you think these 3,000 people obeyed the gospel? It wasn't because it was politically correct. It wasn't. They were convicted that they were sinners. And there's nothing they could do about it. Just like Naaman was convinced that he was a leper. And there was nothing he could do about it. Until he heard that glimmer of hope. And so the first lesson that we can extract from Naaman, the servant girl, is the road to salvation begins with our recognition of our desperate need to be saved. Let me give you a second lesson. The second lesson is this. The power of a simple faith-based confession. The power of a simple faith-based confession. Think about this. Fast forward to the end of the account we just read. The man who had leprosy, the man who could do nothing about it, the man that none of the greatest minds in Syria could do anything about it, has been cleansed so much so that his skin is like that of a baby, and he's rejoicing. He's thankful. He's grateful. We'll say more about that in a little bit. But here's my question How did all that get started? How do we go from a man being hopeless in his leprosy, nothing to do about it, to a man having skin like that of a baby, rejoicing that he's being cured of his leprosy? How did we get there? We got there because of a simple faith based confession of the servant girl. Let's read that again. 2 Kings 5, 2 through 4. Let's go back. 2 Kings 5, 2 through 4. And the Syrians had gone out on rains and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife, then she said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he might heal him up no, that's not right. for he could no he may up it's possible. No, he would heal him Of his leprosy. That's a strong statement. She said two very powerful things. One, there's a man of God in Israel that has the power through God to heal leprosy. Two, if Naaman were there, he would exercise that power in such a way to heal you. That's a strong statement, folks. And that's coming from a servant girl. And I want you to understand the humanity of this situation. I'm impressed by this young girl. I'm impressed because understand who she is and what she's in. And, you know, if, if, if I'm the servant girl, here's what I'm thinking. Okay, you took me away from my homeland. You took me away from my parents. You took me away from my people. You took me away from my culture. You took me away from my favorite foods. You took me away and you enslaved me. And you expect me to be concerned about your leprosy? You deserve that. But she was concerned. Despite that terrible situation she was in, she was still concerned and made this simple declaration of faith in the power of God working through Elisha. And before you say, ah, I don't know if that's really that impressive, it was impressive enough that Jesus himself took note of it. Look at Luke chapter 4, verses 23 through 27. Luke, the fourth chapter, verses 23. 27 we learn from Nam and the servant girl the power of a simple faith-based confession to open the door to salvation the power of a simple faith-based confession luke chapter 4 verses 20 through 27 jesus having read from the scriptures and declared that he was a fulfillment of the scriptures and some their reaction was wait a minute wait a minute this is, this is joseph's son joseph's son Jesus says, verse 23, He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, I surely say to you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years, and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27, And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Think about that for a second. Jesus says, you know what? There were a lot of people with leprosy in the land of Israel. And in their midst was a man of God who had the ability to heal them. Then why did they stay lepers? Worse yet, the only one that we know of that understood the truth of that was a little servant girl who said, while being captured, there's a man of God who would heal you of your leprosy. And Jesus says, that's impressive. It's an indictment. It's a condemnation of all those others. Because what? They didn't believe. They didn't believe. Why would you sit there and know there's a cure to your condition and not go get it? Prophets without honor in his own country. Right there, among you, the answer to your lifelong disease. But you didn't believe in the power of God. But the serving girl did. And on the basis of her believing, and let's give Naaman some credit, he listened. And he went. And he acted upon the simple, faith-based confession of that young Israelite girl. Why do I think that's significant? Why should we think about that? Because... When it comes to teaching the laws, when it comes to spreading the gospel, sometimes we we, we suck ourselves out, so to speak. We get so intimidated. We talk about, oh, I, I just, there's so much I don't know. I, I, I don't know the book of Revelation. And if they start talking about the prophecies, I don't know, I don't know the minor prophets. Uh, you know, I don't know all the intricacies of theology. There's so many things I don't know. Stop. The power of a simple, faith based confession. Do you know what you did to be baptized into Christ? Do you know the plan of salvation? How can you be in the Lord's church and not know that? And if you know that, you can tell other people that. You you don't have to have all the intricacies worked out. Answers to every conceivable question. A simple faith-based confession. John 1, 35-42. Turn over there. John 1, 35-42. Look at the power of a simple faith confession. Based confession, John chapter one verses thirty-five through forty-two. John chapter one verses thirty-five through forty-two. John 1, 35 through forty-two. The Bible says this again. The next day, John, John the Baptist, stood with two of his disciples, looking at Jesus as he walked. He said, "Behold, the Lamb of God." Two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them follow him, said to them, "What do you see?" They said to him, "Rabbi," which is to say, when translated, teacher. Where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. And that was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Listen to verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. When Andrew had spent some time with Jesus, he was convicted. He was convinced that the man with whom he's talked, that man is the Messiah. And what did he do? He went to his brother, Simon Peter. And he made a simple faith-based confession. We have found the Messiah. And I want you to think about the power of that statement. And he brought Peter to Jesus. And think about all the things that Peter did for the Lord. Think about, we just read Acts chapter 2, the Sermon on Pentecost, all oh, the wonderful, mighty things, being an apostle. How did all that get started? A simple faith Based confession he didn't give some theological dissertation he simply said peter we have found the messiah can't we do that we have found the lord we know the son of god we know the plan of salvation i obeyed that plan come and see can't we tell our neighbors that can't we tell our friends that can't we tell our relatives that? Can't we tell our coworkers? No, you may not have all the nuances and all the intricacies, but you know what you did to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you can share that with other people. A simple faith-based confession. Just like that young Israelite girl said, there's a prophet in Israel, and he would cleanse Naaman of his leprosy if he were there. Friends, we need to do some teaching. All of us. It's not reserved for the preachers, not reserved for the deacons, not reserved for the elders. All of us have an obligation to share the gospel. Don't ever start talking about, well, I'm not this and I don't do that. It's not about you. It's about the word of God and its power. They couldn't resist the wisdom by which Stephen spoke, Acts 6:10. It wasn't because he told a bunch of funny stories, wasn't because he's the most charming guy. Doesn't mean that he was the most brilliant debater of all time. He had the word of God. When you have the word of God, nobody's going to resist the wisdom that you speak. Now, they may reject it. They're not going to overcome that. All of us can do that. There's not a single person here that's not capable. And we're going to be held accountable. Look at Matthew 10, 32 through 33. Turn to that. Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 33. Matthew, the 10th chapter, verses 32 through 33. The Bible says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, Jesus speaking here, Him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But, flip side, verse 33. Whoever denies me before men, him I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. I know a lot of times we look at that verse and we say, yes, that's why we have to confess in order to obey uh, the plan of salvation. We talked about that last night. And I wouldn't in any way take away from that. That's true. But friends, if the only confessing of Christ we do is when we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're going to miss heaven. Because this is ongoing. We have to confess Jesus Christ in our lives, in our workplaces, in our families, with our friends, confessing Jesus. Because Jesus says, you don't confess me? Guess what? I don't know you on judgment day. We got a saying among the lawyers. Yeah, it's good to know the judge, but it's better for the judge to know you. And That's what Jesus is saying here. I don't know you if you're going to deny me. Confess me. And so we need to confess. Are we doing that? Christianity is not just about simple, good, moral living that is necessary, but it's not sufficient. We have to teach, all of us. We have to be sharing the gospel of Jesus. Christ. How can we have that good news that brought us out of estrangement to God into fellowship and not share the good news with other people? We have to. You can't stop us. That's the way the apostle Paul was, Acts 17. You couldn't shut Paul up. He just had to tell you about the gospel. Is that us? Do we feel that way? Let me give you a third lesson from Naaman that we can learn. And we learn this. The danger of preconceived notions about salvation. Don't we learn that? The danger of preconceived notions about salvation. Again, go back to the account of Naaman. The problem was that, as the old King James Version said, Naaman says, Behold, I thought. I thought he was going to come out. I thought he was going to make a big show of it. I thought he was going to call on the name of his God. I thought that prophet was going to wave his hand. And and here's my question. Where did that come from? Did, Did the young Israelite girl say anything about that? I mean, what I read, she said, Now, if he were in Israel, there is a prophet of God who would heal him. I didn't hear anything out of her mouth about all this other stuff that Damon came up with in his own mind. That's the problem. He came up with it. Thinking is fine if it's done according to Scripture and God's Word. But the problem with Naaman is he's out there freelancing. God had not said anything about that. Elisha had not said anything about that. The servant go had not said anything about that. He made this up in his mind. And what did that do? It took something that should have been simple and should have been plain and should have been easily understood. And instead of understanding and doing it, he got mad. He got upset because it wasn't what he thought it would be. And friends, we have the same dynamic that happens today. So many people have things in their mind. God hadn't said a word about that. God hadn't taught that in his word. It's not found anywhere in scripture. But people, men have taught this thing, just pulled it out of of thin air. And when these people hear the truth, rather than accepting the truth, it's not hard to understand. Just like it wasn't hard for Naaman to understand, dipping in the River Jordan seven times. They get angry. They get mad. Why? Because of these preconceived notions about salvation. Several years ago, I was in a uh, religious bookstore. And I was talking to a fellow. And we got to talking about religion. And he asked me what church I went to. And, and when he heard that, he said, ah, I know about you guys. You're the ones that believe in that yo-yo salvation. You save one minute, lost the next, save again, lost the next. And he was saying that because he believed once saved, always saved. Very popular doctrine in the religious world. And so, you know, here we are in a religious bookstore, a lot of Bibles. I say, hey, tell you what. Pick up that Bible. Over there. Let's, let's read something. I want you to read Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. Let's turn over there. I want you to see what I ask him to read. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Hebrews the sixth chapter Verses 4 through 6. I said, yeah, just let's, let's read this. And so, you know, he took the Bible out and he began to read. He put his head down he silent. And here's what the text says. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Listen to verse 6. If they fall away. To renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So, as you read this, it's clear what he's talking about, right? He's not talking about alien sinners. He's not talking about people out in the world, right? Because would you describe an alien sinner as having tasted the heavenly gift, of having been once enlightened, of having become partakers of the Holy Spirit? So, we've got people out in the world get one over on God. No! These are Christian people, these are saved people. And yet, the Bible has the audacity to say in verse 6, if they fall away. And so my, the salesman is reading that. And, you know, I, I know about how long it takes to read the passage. And it was just seeming to take a lot longer than I expected. And head stayed down for a long period of time. And finally, he, uh, he raised up. He said, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a difficult passage. Well, I suppose if you believe that you can't fall away and there's a verse that says if you fall away, clearly talking about Christians, that probably is a difficult passage. But the difficulty is not in the passage. The difficulty is created by the preconceived notions in your mind. If you just read it, you understand it's possible for a person to lose their salvation. But if you come into it saying, my mom always taught me. My dad always taught me, my preacher always said, once saved always said, yeah, you're going to struggle with that and a whole bunch of scriptures in God's inspired word. But see, that's the danger. Get rid of the preconceived notions. Get rid of what your mama said and what your daddy said. Great people, wonderful people, not the Lord. Not the Lord. Let's let God be true and every man be a liar. We want to listen to what God's, and all of us did when we read God's word, We need to strip ourselves of our preconceived notions, and our wishes, and our likes, and just do what the Bible says. And then we can understand it. People say, oh, it's so difficult. You can understand those things. A lot of times the difficulty is because of what the baggage that we have in our heads. Get rid of the baggage and just do what the Lord said, just like the servants said. Hey, just do what the man said, dip seven times. We can do that, folks. We've got to learn that there's a danger in bringing all these beliefs and all of these thoughts and all of these. Hey, what did we say last night? We've got to have a thus saith the Lord on it. Somebody comes to you in religion, you ask them, where is that found in God's Word? And if you can't show me where it's found in good, just go on. Because here's my thing if it's not in God's Word, then it's your opinion. And if it's your opinion, I, let me just be honest with you I got opinions too. And between your opinions and my opinions, I prefer mine. I'll just be honest with you. So I'm not going to get rid of my opinions unless you got something more than your opinions. But if you got the word of God, then my opinions yield. Why? Because it's God's word. i got to listen to God, whatever he says. Let me give you another lesson that we take away from Naaman and the servant girl. The power is in the word, not the water. The power is in the word, not the water. Naaman messed this up. You remember when he was told to dip seven times in the River Jordan? Instantly, rather than focusing on the Word of God spoken through Elisha, you know what he started thinking about? He started thinking about water. He said, "Whoa, well, whoa! Well, well, wait a minute. Man, we got better water back home. They abandoned the far part. They're far better than the River Jordan. Now, come on. Now, I didn't come all the way over here to be told that. I could have done that home. But the power is not in the water. The power is in the Word of God. It's because God said so. And in fact, it's interesting. The servants try to get him there. They make an appeal that is just so logical. makes so sense. They say, look, if he would have told you to do something great, you would have done it. And, you know, I want to say that so many times to people who don't want to be baptized into Christ. You know, people will say, yeah, I'm okay with hearing. I'm okay with believing. I'm okay with repenting and confessing. But I don't think you've got to be baptized to be saved. And I want to say to them, hey. Just do what the Lord says. Just be baptized. You know, it's true. If the Lord had said, hey, um, in order for you to be saved, you've got to run a four minute mile, you'd be amazed how many people be over the track. How I many folk be never been on the track in their lives? They'd be over the track. Why? Because that's what you got to do to be saved. Or you've got to climb Mount Everest. All of a sudden, everybody's a, a mountain climber. You've got to swim the English Channel. Everybody's out there swimming. Trying. Why? If something great, we would do it. The Lord didn't say, Lord said, be baptized. 1 Peter 3:21 let's read over there 1 Peter 3:21 just do what the lord says and live 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 21 1 Peter 3rd chapter verse 21 the bible says there is also an antitype and we talked about this last night there's also an antitype which now saves us baptism not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's an antitype which now saves us. What is that antitype? It's baptism. How can we say that baptism doesn't save when the Word of God just said it? Let God be God. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. I think this is a spiritual thing. What's it got to do? It's something magical in the water. It's not about the water. It's about the Word of God. And if God says you have got to be baptized to be saved, guess what? That's true, and that's the end of the matter. And if you can't work it out in your mind and it doesn't make sense to you, God didn't ask for your approval. God spoke truth, and it's up to us to do what's right. Look at Colossians two eleven through twelve. We've got to believe in what God said. We've got to have faith. Colossians chapter two verses eleven through twelve. Colossians the second chapter, verses eleven through twelve. Colossians chapter two. Verses 11 through 12. The Bible says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Listen, to verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him. How? Through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. There's got to be faith in baptism. We walk by faith, not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. I believe that when God says my sins are washed away, that's exactly what happens. I believe that when he says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses me from all sins, I believe that's what happens. Why? Because I believe God. That's what God said. And don't ask me to work out all the intricacies of baptism. I just know what the word says. (laughs) And I'm going to do it. And that's what we're inviting people to do. Just do what the Lord said. If he'd said something great, You would have done it. Why not just wash and be cleansed in the water grave of baptism? Let me give you a fifth item, lesson be yours. The fifth lesson that we learn from Naaman and the servant girl is this. We ought to really appreciate our salvation. We ought to really appreciate our salvation. Did you notice in that story? When Naaman came up out of that water with skin like a babe, like a child, what was his reaction? You reckon he was thankful? You reckon he was appreciative? Do you reckon he had any gratitude? Well, you ain't got to reckon because it states it right there. He's trying to give a gift (laughs) to the man of God, Elisha. Why? He's thankful. He's so thankful for the cleansing. And he recognizes this man has been a vessel through which the power of God has been channeled. And he wants to reward that vessel. He's thankful. He's appreciative. And I want to talk to those of us who are in the church who have been baptized into Christ. And ask us, are we thankful for our salvation? Are we thankful that God cleansed us from our sins? Are we thankful that God has placed us in his church? Are we thankful that God has made us a useful vessel in his kingdom? And while you're wrestling with that question, let me help you with that analysis. If you're thankful, how much do you study your Bible? If you're thankful, how much do you pray to God? If you're thankful, how faithful are you in assembling with the saints? If you're thankful, how often you'll visit the sick and the shut in? If you're thankful, how well are you controlling your tongue? If you're thankful, how well are you controlling your anger? If you're thankful, how well are you controlling your lust? If you're thankful, how careful are you about how you dress in front of others? If you're thankful, how careful are you about your entertainment? your books, your movies, and your music. If you're thankful, how much teaching are you doing to your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and your co-employees? So that's what I mean when I say are you thankful? I want to ask you, do you have the attitude of the man that we're about to read about? First Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 through 17. First Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 through 17. We need to learn to appreciate our salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy the first chapter verses 12 through 17. And the Bible says. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. Who has enabled me. Because he counted me faithful. Putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer. A persecutor and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying. Listen to this. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Listen to this. Of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering. As a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible. To God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Does that sound like a man who is appreciative of his salvation? Absolutely it is. He thanks God for what he's done. He said, you know, I was an insolent man. I was a persecutor. I was an evil man. But look what God has done to me and through me. And you know what? He says, there, there's, there's a story here. There's a powerful story here. What God has done in my life, God can do in yours. God can do that. When people say, I, I've just done too much. I've done some terrible things. God, wouldn't, God won't forgive me. Have you ever heard of a man called Saul? <laughs> Last time I checked, there are not too many of us who actively persecuted the church.